May I speak in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, I got to use the new TED-style headset. You can see I have it on this morning. The result of a generous donation from one of our members. A practice I'm keen to encourage among you with the formation of a Friends of Trinity Cathedral. I first noticed this headset while watching the TED Talks. And for those of you not familiar with these, go to Netflix on your TV or to TED Talks on your computer and on the website where the sermon blog is posted, I have posted three links to particular TED Talks which might be of interest to you. So if you don't know TED Talks, then go to those links and you will see what I'm talking about this morning. What fascinates me about the TED Talks is not only the content of the presentations, the style of presentation is what interests me. Presenters do vary in their styles, yet the TED style is a masterful use of the immediacy of conversation made possible by the combination of verbal and visual stimuli. This is achieved by the engagement of both our eyes and our ears as the key words and short phrases and pictures flash on the big screen behind the speaker's head pithily capturing the meaning of the words that we are hearing. So when I said last week and this morning that I now have the headset, next comes the big screen. You can imagine it just above my head here. Many anxiously snicker, hoping that I'm making a joke, but sensing perhaps that I am not. You see, the Episcopalian brand features a strong emphasis on traditional worship. Yet, even Episcopalians are increasingly caught up by the communications revolution. It's taking place all around us. As the world shifts from a communication style established by the invention of the printing press, we become less oriented to the complex, verbally-based communication style, the expression of ideas and argument, and more oriented to a communication style that skillfully mixes the visual and the verbal into a message. There's this wonderful Nike ad. It just shows someone's feet running, ba, 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 and at the end, just across the screen, flashes the word Nike. It's a powerful, visceral form of communication. You know, one picture, as the old adage goes, one picture says a thousand words. And that this captures the essence of communication in the digital age. 
And through our ancient liturgy, a medium of sight and sound and action, the Episcopal Church is already ahead of the game. So why not take further advantage of modern electronic media to further enhance our core communication strength? Of course, one stumbling block, and which is why you all snicker a little bit when I say this, is that for those of us over 40, we've been shaped by a communication style that uses words to stimulate thoughts and ideas. What you really, what you really, what you said really made me think is a comment I often receive from you following my sermons. And while I'm very glad to know that that's particularly true, and I'm one who loves the interplay of words and the construction of an argument that unfolds in stations, it's not the way Jesus uses words. Jesus has a teaching style that does not aim to stimulate thoughtful reflection, connecting words with ideas. Jesus' teaching style is closer to the TED Talks in that words are used conversationally to evoke powerful and usually contradictory images It's through these confrontative images that Jesus' message comes. He's not interested in reflection. He's interested in changing lives. And these images don't flash on a big screen behind Jesus. They flash on the internal screen of our own minds. And here Jesus evokes images that challenge us directly. Last week, uh, Canon Rhodes shared his sense of relief that it was last week's gospel that he got to preach on and not this week's. And I have spent a week wrestling with this text from Luke. Like the TED Talks, Jesus uses words to provoke images that flash across our internal screens. And if taken seriously, these images disturb me deeply. Because when I measure myself, my attitudes and my actions against these images... I am uncomfortably aware of how far in my discipleship I fall short. In what ways do I fall short of being able to live the fullness of the life of a disciple? To begin with, my arms are given from my surplus and not by the selling of my possessions. And if my surplus decreases, 
Nothing seems more reasonable to me than that the level of my giving should follow likewise. Is my treasure where my heart is to be found? This is not a comforting image for me because it requires me to examine the question, what is it that I treasure? My treasure is not monetary, yet it is deeply personal to me. My heart is devoted to the pursuit of my own competence and self-sufficiency. I have such a vivid picture of a purse that does not wear out and will contain the wherewithal necessary for life in heaven. If I had a big Ted screen behind me now, I'd be able to flash pictures of moth-eaten purses and of rust-corroded strongboxes, contrasted with a scene of the good life floating around on the clouds of heaven. Pictures of heavenly purses, which I have become prudent enough to prepare for in advance, remind me that in this last week as I went to renew my motor insurance, the Geico agent on the other end of the phone said, Mr. Sutherland, do you know that you qualify for our umbrella policy? And I said, what is that? And she went into great deal to explain to me that for another $162, I can purchase $1 million of coverage to protect me from all those nasty people who are queuing up outside to sue me. (laughs) But when Jesus talks about making purses fit for heaven... He's not talking about heaven as the ever hereafter. Jesus never talks about heaven like that. He talks about the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom that is here, present, now. And so purses fit for the kingdom are purses that are usable now for the betterment of the world in which we live. Resources that are put to use now are less subject to the decay of moth and rust than if they are amassed and hoarded, left unused in preparation for some future and largely imaginary state. Jesus asks us to be dressed for action. Am I dressed for action? I most certainly am. Yet a more pertinent question is, how am I dressed for action? My early life experience has given me a prodigious skill to anticipate and to be ready for whatever trouble might be just around the corner. And so dressed in armor, I am ready for action. Yet the action Jesus has us picture here is not that of battle, but of expectation and readiness to welcome with joy 
to celebrate being in love and trusting in that love. The servants are overjoyed at the return of their master. This is an image that loses its power for us until we remember that in Jesus' world, the relationship between master and servant was one of mutual dependency, trust, and protection. Am I dressed for expectation? This does not mean being ready for the future before it happens. Jesus means that I should be ready in the present moment and in each successive present moment to celebrate because I trust God and am trusted by God. All that energy expended on anticipating the future is futile. For none of us knows at which hour the imaginary threat we anticipate will present itself. An anxious anticipation results in our not being ready for what is happening to us right now. If I am ready now, I am always ready. And I have no need to scare myself into a state of anxious anticipation of future disaster. Jesus asks us to focus our attention only on the moment in which we are actually living. The present moment is the only moment in which we are actually alive. And how would my life change if I were to know that next Sunday I would die? I suspect the next week would be the most life-filled experience. Under the impetus of no time to lose, I would turn my attention to what really matters to me. And this would be to be present to the celebration of love in friendship. In the letter to the Hebrews, the reading that we had just before the gospel this morning, we hear the greatest definition of the character of faith ever, ever recorded. This anonymous writer, often the letter to the Hebrews is ascribed to Paul, but it's clear that it's much too late for Paul's authorship. And so the anonymous writer tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The great American novelist Mark Twain puts a more idiomatic spin on the character of faith when he has Huck Finn proclaim, faith is believing what you know ain't so. can't quite get the accent. (laughs) And I have a version of Huck's comment, which I tell people when they ask, how can I risk taking the leap of faith? I don't know what I feel about God, and I don't even know if there is a God. I simply tell them, fake it till you make it. 
And what I mean by this is that in longing for a trusting and loving relationship with God, it's important to live as if what you most long for is already true. Contrast two ways of living. Living, doubting, fearful, insecure, and living with the confidence of knowing that what you most long for is already true. And it doesn't matter whether intellectually you believe that or not, you act as if it is true until it finally becomes true. So what is it that we must live out every day as if it is true? Jesus begins this particular section with the words, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Note that God addresses us here as little flock, not as individuals. He talks to us as a community. God is inviting us to trust and to relax and to be less preoccupied with getting so that we can respond to God's giving and emulate God's generosity in our giving. Jesus tells us it is only through being open to God's initiative, to God's provision, in some to God's reality, that our deepest needs come to be met. Is not our deepest need to make a difference through living life as an expression of gratitude and generosity? What we most long for is not only that our need is met, but that we live beyond the confines of our own self-centered prisons. So that our lives become a source of what makes a difference for good in the lives of others who share the world with us. And so, my friends, my dear friends, let this be our prayer today and every day. Amen.